meeting of the Historical Advisory Board. Uh, could we start with roll call, please? Okay, let's uh, take a roll call. Um, Chair Sanchez? Present. Okay. Uh, board Member uh, Hernandez? Present. Um, Borthwick? Present. Uh, Saxby? Present. And then uh, Jones um, is currently absent. Okay, thank you. All right, so uh, our second item is our non-agenda items uh, for public comment. So this is an opportunity for members of the public uh, to comment on any items that are not listed on the agenda. Uh, do we have any speakers waiting to speak? No speakers, okay. Uh, so we'll move on to meeting minutes. So the, this is for the meeting minutes from the April 6th, 2023 uh, meeting of the Historical Advisory Board. Uh, do we have any comments or corrections from the board regarding the minutes? Um, I have a very general comment. Maybe it's a question. I know we're experiencing sort of a new format for these meeting minutes. Um, but Henry, can you explain I mean, I don't even relate these meeting minutes to the meeting. Um, they talk about the planning board meeting. They talk about what the planning board said. There's very few comments that this board made included in these minutes. And, you know, the planning board met several days after we did, so, and we weren't present for that meeting. So I'm kind of confused as to what the format of the meeting minutes is. Yeah, so, um as I explained in the last meeting, staff, we need to um, go to these action format minutes for the board. Um, and it's really due to kind of uh, limited staff available to, to help with going through all the meetings. So what you see here is um, basically just minutes on the actions that the board took. Um, and then we're also um, summarizing any um, public comments that we received. So, um, so that's, that's really kind of the basis of the format. And then why is the, the planning board um, comments included in these meeting, meeting minutes? Um, I, let's see, I guess, let me and I didn't even look. get, the, I didn't even get the fact that the, the actions that we took were even included here. There may have been one, but I, I, I was very, I was very taken back by this. Um, but I still, I'm not, I'm not up to speed with the new format, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure, uh, uh, I guess I'll have to double check on, on the planning board comments on there. I'm not exactly quite sure what happened. Yeah, let me just. Well, I'm, I'm not comfortable approving these as, as they're written, um, just because I don't think that the, discussion of this board was really fully um, incorporated. Right, and I know we're not taking item by item discussion points, but even the, you know, sort of we, I think we came up with a list of five or six items that were gonna be brought to the planning board at their meeting, and I didn't see those listed in this meeting minute at all. Okay, yeah, let me, let, let us take a look back at that again then, and then okay. we, can, we can bring it back next time. I appreciate that, and, I'm, and I'll, I'll get used to the new format and I'll stop being so critical, but um, I'm just, I'm not getting the sense of our meeting from this document. 
Okay. Board Member Jones, did you have any comments related to the meeting minutes from last meeting? Okay. No. So we'll, we'll go ahead and continue that, um, the minutes to the next meeting. Okay, so we won't okay. vote to approve, we'll just continue them to the next meeting. Yeah, thank okay. you. Appreciate and, that. Okay. And then can we reflect for the record that Board Member Jones has joined us as well? Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, so um, Board Member Jones has just joined us, so we have a full quorum. Thank you. Okay. Um, so moving on to our regular agenda. Okay, so this is item 4A, uh, objective design review standards, public workshop on revisions to objective design review standards, which consist of a checklist of architectural and site design standards that will apply to housing development projects under state law. Adoption of the objective standards is exempt from CEQA pursuant to CEQA guidelines section 15061 subsection B3, the comments, the common sense exception that CEQA applies only to projects that have potential for causing a significant effect on the environment and as a separate and independent basis, CEQA guidelines sections 15183, projects consistent with a community plan, general plan, or zoning. And I believe we have um, a presentation from staff. Thank you, uh, Chair Saxby. Um, yes, tonight we have um, David Sablon, our um, staff planner and uh, Heather Coleman, our um, consultant with us tonight again. And so they've been uh, working hard on uh, updating the um, objective design review standards. Um, and so David Sablon has a uh, presentation for us. Great. Um, see Just want to check, can, can anybody hear me? Yes, yes we yep. can. Okay, all right. Okay, um, so thank you, uh, Chair Sanchez and uh, members of the board. Uh, my name is David Sablon um, with the Planning, the Building, and Transportation Department. Um, so um, tonight, um, just here to kind of provide you with a brief rundown of the update process. Um, next slide. Um, yeah, so uh, as you as as just mentioned, uh, on April 6th, uh, the Historical Advisory Board had a study session where uh, they provided uh, feedback to uh, the, the staff, and then the staff relayed that feedback to the Planning Board on April 10th. Um, they considered, you know, the HAB and staffs and the public comment um, directed staff to make some revisions uh, to the standards. And so uh, over April and May, um, staff worked on those revisions. And so um, uh, the purpose of tonight's study session is to review these revisions and provide feedback to the staff and the planning uh, board. Uh, in particular, uh, we're, we're looking to see how these standards can help guide infill development, preserve, and complement the existing historic character of Alameda's established neighborhoods. Um, and then after tonight, we are preparing to present these revisions along with your, your feedback uh, to the planning board on June 26th. Uh, next slide. All right, so um, just jumping right in, um, one of the issues uh, that, that was discussed is uh, building entries. Um, and so for building entries, staff is uh, recommending beefing up the standards uh, to require shared entries have a width of a double door in addition to being covered. 
uh, which are in the current standards. Um, these pictures show uh, examples of shared entries that have uh, the width of a double door, either by actually being a double door or uh, using side lights and storefront windows to achieve that width. Um, next slide, please. Uh, related to uh, shared building entries are breezeways. Uh, we had this discussion uh, last time. Um, breezeways as a shared entrance, uh, which is often a desirable layout for affordable housing developers. So uh, based on that, staff is recommending a new standard which allows for breezeways, but requires breezeways feature vertical elements along the, its side and be covered by a roof projection to signify a formal entrance. Uh, next slide. Uh, an issue that actually came up at the planning board at a recent meeting was uh, campus-style developments uh, that by their nature uh, prefer uh, or require secure inward-facing entrances for residents. Uh, this is for developments with some type of supportive services, such as uh, transitional housing or assisted living facility. Um, under the current standards, uh, this, this is prohibited. Um, some type of front entrance is always going to be required on a primary street. Uh, to provide flexibility, uh, staff is recommending a new Section 6 uh, for exemptions uh, to the, the front um, uh, you know, the front entrance on a primary street. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and so in this new uh, Section 6, uh, the, uh, the campus-style uh, uh, layout would essentially be allowed on um, non-Main Street and Gateway Street um, uh, frontages. And so here is uh, street classifications from the cities that recently adopted a general plan from the mobility uh, element. Um, and the, the, the orange here uh, of streets here, like Webster Street, Fifth Street, um, Park Street, uh, are, are considered the main streets. And these, these are obviously the streets that we want, um, you know, street-facing entrances, uh, primary entrances on these streets. And so um, outside of these streets, uh, we would, uh, you know, the, the recommendation from staff is to, to allow these types of uh, developments, campus-style developments, when they provide uh, on-site uh, uh, services for, for residents. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, another issue uh, that was actually uh, brought up by the planning board is um, balconies and recessing them um, on the far right, or sorry, far left, you can see an example of um, uh, balconies that are just uh, projecting uh, from the from the, the face of the, the, the wall, while uh, the other uh, pictures, you can see that there's some type of recess uh, for balconies. And so uh, staff has uh, drafted new um, uh, recommend, or new conditions for uh, allowing for recessed uh, uh, balconies, as well as, uh, you know, if you're going to be using projecting uh, balconies, that they be mitigated uh, with some type of uh, transparent uh, railings uh, or, or, yeah. Uh, next slide, please. Oh, so, yeah, this is um, kind of on that discussion point. Uh, next slide. Uh, one of the, the comments um, from the, the HAB, and, uh, which was supported by the planning board, was including uh, the North Park Street area and the traditional design area and extending uh, the traditional design area to one and two family homes when they are uh, located in the front 50 feet of a street frontage. Um, and so here uh, we can see that in the North Park Street uh, 
zoning district, there, there's uh, five, uh, I'm sorry, four, um, I'm sorry, no, actually five uh, sub-districts. And here, um, the, the orange is the gateway sub-district and and the yellow is the residential and mixed use subdistricts. And so these are the zones in the North Park Street District uh, that actually allow uh, residential development, um, the workplace and, and uh, yeah, workplace and marine manufacturing, which are, are not part of the, uh, not shown here, um, do not permit residential uh, uh, dwelling uses. And so uh, staff's not recommending that they, that be included in the digital design area. Thank you. Uh, next slide. Um, one of the um, uh, recommendations or, or changes is um, previously when selecting reference buildings, there was a, a list of options and um, is, is discussed that distinctive buildings are, are really the, the key uh, feature that we want to be uh, reference buildings. And so um, when distinctive buildings, whether that's a historic monument, a local monument or properties designated as N or S on our historic building study list are present in the, the reference area or the context area, that they are the option used. And then if those, those types of buildings are not present, then the other three options can be used to uh, predominate architectural style, adjacent building or architectural features. Uh, next slide. Um, and then also another change uh, within the context area is that uh, when, when the project site is located within the, the CC zones and the traditional design area, which is essentially uh, Park Street and Webster Street, um, here the, the, the purple uh, you see is the Park Street uh, commercial district. Um, that you can choose from those uh, distinctive buildings or the um, from the entire district itself. And so, um, and, you know, if you were to have a development within this DC uh, district, then you would be able to pull from one of the, the contributing structures to the, the Park Street Historic District, um, which is a local monument. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, another thing um, that staff is working on is more illustrations as part of uh, the staff report uh, packet. We kind of uh, provided a list of what we think are high priority um, illustrations and um, and then we would like some feedback on that. Uh, next slide. Um, so the process is um, we're, we're having the, the study session with you tonight. Um, you know, look to review uh, staff's recommended uh, revisions uh, and get your feedback and provide that feedback uh, along with public input at the planning board hearing um, next or at the end of this month um, and uh, have the planning board, you know, make a decision on to adopt uh, these standards or, or revisions that they add. Uh, and then for the summer staff is gonna be uh, working on adding those illustrations to the, to the document. Um, so um, so yeah, tonight, uh, study session, um, we want review uh, staff's proposed revisions, uh, hear and consider public comment, and then provide uh, comments on those revisions to the planning board. Um, with that, that's the, my presentation. Um, myself, Heather Coleman, Henry Dong are here to answer any questions that you have, might, might have for staff. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Um, do any board members have questions that they'd like to start with? Um, I'll 
begin with one question that I have uh, for David. Um, so with regards to the options, David, could you, if I understood correctly, there's the option to select multiple buildings from within the TDA um, area as, as source buildings. Is that, do I have that right? Uh, not the entire, no, it'd be um, you, the, the reference area, there's, there's um, reference areas uh, within, um, within the design standards. Um, usually it's uh, five lots, you know, on each side of the, the project site or 250 feet. Uh -huh. um, however, when a project site is located within the, the CC zone, which is the, our downtown, you know, Webster Street and um, Park Street, that reference area is expanded to include the entire commercial district. And so instead of just using the five lots, uh, you would use the entire district. Okay, so, but yeah, but, th thank you for the clarification. And so, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, David, go ahead. Oh, no, and then, well, as is opposed to, uh, you know, a, a, an infill development that's located in an R5 zone uh, where the reference area would just be the five lots or 250 feet on either side of the project. Uh, understood. So, so maybe I could rephrase my question. So if we were looking at an infill lot on Park Street that was part of the TDA, uh, then we could use any building uh, as a reference within the, within the Park Street corridor that that was an N or an S. Do I have that right? Correct, or, or you know, a monument. So in Park Street, you know, the, the whole district is a monument, and so it would be the contributing structures to that district. Okay, so conceivably, I could rely on multiple buildings, not just one within the commercial district as, as a source. Is that, do I have that right? No, it would, it would be one, one building that Only you'd be one. pulling from, yeah. Got it, okay. So. And maybe I misread it, but I was uh, in reading the the options. It seemed to me like you were offering the option to select building or buildings as sources, and so that was that was what was leading to my next question, which was how do we make sure we don't wind up with multiple styles being referenced? And so that's so it is intended that you could select one source building, but not multiple source buildings, unless those buildings were of a similar type and consistent yeah. with each other. Is that, do I have that right now? Yeah, yeah that's correct. And so that, yeah, that's something that we can make sure it's very clear in the standards the way it's written that it's a building and not buildings. Okay. And then the other uh, question that I had for you, David, is when you, so when we're talking about, and, and these are very specific areas, but there are a number of areas um, where we have commercial zones that are very limited within a residential zone. So. One example I came up with was the corner of Ensenal and Chestnut, where we have like a commercial on four corners surrounded by residential. So mm -hmm. in that particular instance, um, what are the options for, for source buildings? Is it only the adjacent four corners or is there an option to go beyond that to, to other TDA areas to draw from? So uh, those, the, the, um, the, the stations that you're referring to, like at Ensenal and, and Chestnut, those are um, actually um, C C1 zoning districts. And so those would not be uh, part of that, that context area reference building. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. It would, uh, it would be go, go back to uh, the, you know, the regular infill uh, reference area where it'd be the five lots on either side and across the street 
and yeah. Got it. Okay. Okay. Thanks. That those are those are my questions. Um, does anybody else want to? Yeah, I have a, I have a question, sure. David. What about um, outlier buildings within the context area? I guess you have a bunch of criteria, you know, showing preference for the, the NNS uh, designated buildings on the study list, but. If there's a, a building that's clearly um, out of place in the district, in the context area, are we disqualifying it? Um, I, no. Um, the way it's written at this point, I, you know, it would not disqualify an outlier building. Then, um, but if how, there how do we address that? An N or S, oh, I'm sorry. I said, how do we address that then? If you know, if 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 that ends up being the context or one of the context uh, examples or um, uh, for the proposed design. So if you get uh, an instance where the outlier building is, is an N or an S on the, on the, on the study list. Um, uh, yeah, I don't. I think we should think about that um, okay. and have a way of, of Disqualifying buildings if it's um, if they've been severely altered if they're pre 1942 buildings but you know don't really um, express that design uh, with their current features um, if they're modern buildings that maybe don't fit into the traditional design area at all um, I th you know I think we should have a, a, an answer for that question David do we have a criteria for altered buildings. Um, whether they can qualify or not. Yeah, and so um, I'm trying to think. I think we we could put language, uh, and if it's not already in there, for um, you know, it's only for pre-1942 buildings. And then um, I guess the difficult part was would be to make uh, objective language for uh, you know significantly altered buildings. How to you know be able to describe that objectively? Yeah, um, but I that's guess something that the the true test would be to to go to each of these areas and, and see if there are examples of that. Um, and maybe it's an unfounded uh, issue, but uh, you know, I think we, sh we, we need to address it somehow. Is there, is there not a, um, sorry, Heather, did you wanna chime in on this one? If sorry. it helps, there is um, a section that, that um, excludes altered buildings from serving as a reference building, and that's on page 227E. I guess just to quickly add to that, um, I'm, I would love to know like what an outlier building might be. Like what, I guess it's my question to you, uh, board member Saxby. A building that doesn't fit into the, the historic context of the district. So like, okay, I'm, I'm, I just want to really understand. So I want to uh, either renovate or it's a new build, and I'm looking to the nearby surrounding areas for inspiration. Um, and to help me with that, we are helping the developer realize, hey, you you know, it's it's worthwhile to look at N and S buildings first because these are kind of tried and true, tested over time, buildings that have not been altered. Um, and so it's kind of highlighting these buildings that um, against it the test of time and sort of like publicly understood to be of 
value in that way. So an outlier, though, would be like a building that's not in the same, it's just a random style that happens to be there that could still qualify because it's still kind of built before 1942? Yeah, one, that... one example that I could think of would be if you had a Victorian that had been stuccoed over, and so it's clearly not sort of the original materials. Am I, am I saying, are you in agreement with that, Tom? Yeah, I think so, that's, an, that's one of the examples, but I think... Um, so if you, were, if you were to say, well, that isn't an N or an S because it's been altered, mm -hmm. um, but if it's in a neighborhood where that's not the predominant building type or that's an outlier because it's unique in the fact that it's been stuccoed, you couldn't use stucco to sort of rely on that architectural style because stucco wouldn't be native to that, or to that style. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, but so I think it's already then in the document where it would kind of disqualify it from something that the objective standards would promote because it's already been altered. Correct, yeah, another, I guess another example would be a pre-1942 building that doesn't necessarily have a, um, a historic architectural style. So if it were a blank stucco box, maybe that's an out, uh, another example of an outlier. Sorry, say that one again, a blank. So if it were built, if it's pre-1942, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily a predominant historic architectural style, okay. that, that it could potentially be an outlier. So it's a very, if it had very plain details and was very boxy and not an architectural style that was definable within the guidelines, that maybe that would be considered an outlier. I and the fact that it was older wouldn't necessarily qualify it. Am I would you agree with that, Tom? Am I explaining that correctly? Well, I, I think those are, those are potential examples. Um, you know, I'm just trying to make sure that, that we're addressing all, you know, these are object, objective design standards that can be used in all conditions. Mm -hmm. And I wanna make sure that we address as many possibilities as we can um, okay. in the document. Yeah. Just really quickly to your point, though, um, I, it's hard for me to fathom. I'm just, you know, saying because I, I can't imagine, like, something, like, boxy, as you described, to make it to an NRS category. Yeah. But so, I could be wrong. I don't know. Right. No, so I don't think that it would be an NNS, but if you get outside of the... Mm -hmm. uh, so my understanding is that the that the NRS would be used for the TDA as an option for the TDA district, but outside the district, you're looking at Other, context. Mm -hmm. And also, there's so there may not be an NRS correct, Heather, or am I confusing the issue? So just one thing is, um, outside the TDA, the neighborhood context standards wouldn't apply. So the NRS is for option one, mm -hmm. and you have, if there is an NRS, you have to use it you have to use that. And then number, I believe number two is you find a predominant architectural style in the neighborhood. And then number three is you use the two adjacent buildings on either side if they're pre-1942. And then number four is you do an inventory of, of architectural features in your 250 foot um, distance. So. so I think the, you know, I don't maybe, know if that maybe helps. The, the, the place where outliers can sneak in is the adjacent building clause. So you have, you know, your site and you have 
one side a stucco box, 1939 vintage. Mm -hmm. The other side, you know, a Victorian commercial building. And so potentially a developer, a person developing the lot could use both of those as context? Um, yeah, they could use both of them. And so they'd be responding to the shape of the buildings. Um, but not the they would be Yeah, they would be responding to the two buildings on, on either side. Um, but I guess if one was significantly altered um, as described in 7E, then they, they would not be able to use it. So they would just have to use, I'd have to look back over this, they would just have to use the one on the other side. Do you have anything else, Tom? No. On, on just the subject of altered, um, I, I think we'd be hard pressed to really find any buildings that haven't been altered in some way. And we're not, we're giving some good examples of like, oh, it has stucco or aluminum. But I've seen a number of houses that have had architectural details restored. They're not the original. They're, you know, in the vein of, but without really defining it, it's still, you know, it, it's, this is, I think, a, a tricky one. Like, how do you say, oh, this is an unaltered building? You're like, of course it's been altered. They're, they're old. Um, so I, I just worry about things that are worded in ways that might get the city in trouble as they're uh, approaching review and are being challenged by the developer you know, are these words that can trap us as a community uh, and the, you know, sort of the prevalence of the options. It's like, well, it's great to have options as someone wanting to develop properties, but it also increases the complexity of the review, increases the potential for, you know, sort of misuse or, and I, I think the unintended consequences is maybe what you're referring to is like, well, you know, something could get through you know, that, that shouldn't. And I'm not suggesting, you know, any particular solution around that, but, you know, why so many options, I guess, would be one of the questions. Uh, do we really need that many different ways to approach it? Uh, or could uh, a smaller set of options still cover it? Good question. Is there a response to that? That's a good question. I think it goes back uh, yeah. to allowing um, flexibility and variety, right? Because um, when the planning board first set out to do these objective design review standards, they had three main principles that they wanted to, us to follow. And that's, you know, facilitating good design, right? And then allowing for architectural variety. And then the last one was, um, you know, avoiding excessive costs to housing. So, um, so, uh, could I rephrase uh, board member Hernandez's question maybe differently? So if, if for example, a, um, a facade had been altered, the elements were not original to the house, but they were within, based on the design guidelines, they were consistent with the style, the original style of the house, then those elements could be part of those options. However, if they were if you were putting craftsman corbels on a Victorian home, those would not be original and would also not be elements that would be original to the design. So those would not be an option if you were 
trying to uh, achieve that style. Would it, is that fair to say? I think that sounds correct, uh, David. Do, do uh, you know if that's the... yeah? So I think this discussion is kind of pointing out something that um, kind of alluded to earlier that it's difficult to have an objective definition of an altered building. Um, I think uh, we probably would have to to look at rewriting this a, a little bit. Um, you know, just kind of thinking about it right now, um, we have in our guide to residential design, um, you know, descriptions of all the different styles uh, that are, are found uh, in Alameda. And so I think, um, you know, a way to kind of address this is to talk about, you know, all the, the items and features in those drawings for each architectural style. Um, and, you know, if those aren't present, or they yeah, have been removed, then we can consider that uh, an altered building. Okay. Is that... Yeah, I think, I think, you know, utilizing those, those uh, documents is an excellent way to cover a lot more information without making these um, standards overly complex. They could just be referenced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Questions? <laughs> Do you have any other? I have questions, but it's regarding like other topics that Mr. Sablon mentioned. Can I just go ahead and? Please do. Okay. Um, so with the exemption to the front entrance to the primary street of these kind of campus type areas, I think um, it's, it's probably just obvious to everyone, but I just want to make sure that emergency vehicles and because I'm thinking like main entrances to primary streets are there for a purpose to begin with. So with that, um, still be, uh, would that still work with potential? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the, the, you know, these campus style developments are, are going to have some type of parking in the middle, um, uh, for, for access vehicles, um, in, during the review process, um, the, the fire department reviews plans to, and, uh, make sure that they are, you know, that they meet proper fire and building building codes and fire also includes ex exiting and um uh, entering uh egress and ingress of, of buildings and so uh, i think those uh you know codes would would kind of address that okay and great and um the other question i had i really um thought that map of the street cl classifications was really uh interesting and informative um it's the first Time I think I've seen it. Um, uh, has there been any contest to the classifications of the different areas? And then my second question is, what's the difference between a main street and a business commercial area street? Uh, yeah, so yeah, this was uh, adopted by the city council uh, earlier this year as a, an appendix to the, the general plan. Um, and so those, you know, those conversations have, have Kind of already been been had uh, about that, and then uh, as far as uh, you know, Main Street versus business commercial. Business commercial is essentially our our office parks, and so Marina Village and Harbor Bay, uh, those are our business commercial, and then the uh, the Main Street are you know Park Street, Webster Street, um, actually uh, West Atlantic and Side A. Got it. Um, yeah, those are my only two questions so far. Um. Um, Board Member Jones, I, I guess I could add that um, we did have conversation with the Housing Authority, kind of initial comments, and 
one of the concerns was that um, the gateway classification doesn't always um, work for this map. So we're, we might take a look at that a little bit more because there's this, there's like a stretch of Tilden Way that's um, connects to the bridge, and it's not necessarily a pedestrian kind of oriented. It's very like a vehicle thoroughfare kind of a road, and so. Um, I don't know if we would necessarily want a building to like have their main entrance on on that type of of a um, of a road. So we might have to take a look at that a little bit more. Noted. I, I still think the map was really cool and informative. So kudos. <laughs> I think it's in our it's in our packet. Oh, okay, yeah. great. Um, okay. Are, were there any other questions from the board before we open up for public have, discussion? Yeah, board member um, Saxby. Are we taking questions on the one and two two family dwelling portion of the objectives now? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I had a question on the the raising a building category, um, height and proportions. It, it specifically calls out Victorian and colonial revival style buildings, but I wonder um, how it addresses some of the other styles that we have. For instance, craftsmen. And are, does it mean that those buildings cannot be raised? Or, I mean, I think that's probably appropriate for a craftsman style house, but I'm, yeah. I'm wondering how it's, how it's addressed. Yeah, so um, currently with uh, just the design review manual, the discretionary review and everything, um, it, it's easy to make the finding that raising a cap, the craftsman uh, bungalow is, is not consistent with architectural style um, and therefore is not uh, consistent with design review manual. And so for those reasons, we can't approve it. I think in an objective you know, ministerial review like this, um, I think we do have to be very specific and just say uh, colonial revival and Victorian homes so that um, uh, you know, these standards apply for, for raising those. Um, and then adding um, that crossing bungalows can't be raised. Uh, you'd have to do a second story addition in the rear if you wanted to, to add on, um, you know, a second unit. And then in the, in the design guidelines, I believe there's a discussion of actually putting a floor underneath the, the primary floor level and moving the entry to the lower floor. Mm -hmm. Um, is that an option that's that's being considered for raising a building on these design standards? Uh, so like, for instance, maybe, yeah. I mean, a craftsman probably, again, wouldn't be appropriate for that because of the distinctive front porch and whatnot. But um, say a, a shingle-style building, single-story, could be raised up and a floor put underneath it, and the primary entrance directed to the first floor um, and, and this, the raising of a building, it doesn't really address that um, concept here. Yeah, yeah, and that, that, it is something in a guide to residential design, and so, um, yeah, it, that's, that's a, a, kind of a good catch to, to have in there is that uh, we don't want to prohibit that for uh, objective design review uh, process um, for, you know, you know creating a, a two-story colonial uh, revival where the bottom floor is you know, a full story as opposed to, um, you know, seven or eight feet in um, what this is imagining. So yeah, then, you know, staff will have to add something in there um, that allows for that. 
Uh, I have a question on garages. Um, so I'm, uh, again, looking in the one and two family dwellings on page two. Uh, under section C, it shows a width uh, limitation for garage doors, not more than 50% of the width of the facade. That only applies to attached garages, or does it also apply to detached garages? That would be for just for attached garages. Okay, and where did that number come from, or, or why that number? Um, Sorry, I can just say it's a, a standard that other jurisdictions have used to limit the width of garages on the, um, so that they don't dominate frontages. So it's in alignment with the principle of, of um, not having uh, you know, avoiding the the snout house or 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 any uh, building, you know, frontage where it's taken up predominantly by by garage frontage. Got it. Yeah, I'm just thinking of some buildings that I know that have this <laughs> in town already. So it was like, well, is it, you know, were we on a momentary pause there when those buildings got approved? And uh, I'm thinking along. Uh, what is that? I guess it'd be Willow towards the beach on the far side of Otis. There's some developments and they're, they're basically garages with a little door uh, to get into the house. So there's, you know, <laughs> there's a bunch of them. Uh, okay, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't require, um, you know, alteration of an existing building. It's just if they're, if they're putting a new garage in or a new building in, then um, yeah, we'd like the garage not to be the the dominant feature. Okay, super. So they couldn't use the adjoining building excuse to say, "Well, these two have it." So, yeah, right. I right. would venture to guess that most of those are not pre nineteen forty two. Probably not. <laughs> and it sounds like they could just turn it so it's not street facing, and, and then that that restriction goes away. Uh, Is that correct? I'm, I'm sorry. Can, can if, you repeat if the that garage again? was not street facing, and it was turned to the side of the lot somehow, and there was access then the 50% rule doesn't apply. Right. Okay. Right. okay. Super. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, also, uh, if it's behind another building. Or behind, yeah. yeah. And if, so, um, uh, again, in that same uh, document, um, under the architectural details of materials, uh, I saw, uh, for very good reason, aluminum siding being prohibited, uh, uh, T111 also prohibited but uh, was curious to find out why vinyl is not allowed. Um, specifically, as a builder, we use a product called Azec, which is uh, PVC-based, essentially plastic. Uh, it's very well regarded. It's uh, extremely durable. And you would be hard-pressed to understand it's not wood unless I told you it, what it was. So by disallowing certain new modern products just out of hand, uh, I think we are uh, doing ourselves and our housing stock a disservice. They're you know, very uh, well-known and well-used products. So I would, I would uh, see that stricken because you know, specifically those are products that I think are, are good to have. Uh, because of their durability. Um, and then also in that same section, or maybe it's a little later, I know there's talk about shingles and the use of shingles being uh, limited to 
uh, cement board uh, style shingles that are smooth in nature. And I can't remember where that is uh, in the document. That's at page four. Help me out if you know where that went. Um, uh, anyway, uh, those uh, shingles, which are fa another fantastic product, only come in a wood grain uh, finish. They do not come, at least nowhere I've ever found, in a smooth finish. So both uh, AZEC, uh, which is the PVC product, has a shingle, which is super realistic, uh, as well as James Hardy, Hardy Board, and other name brands, all their uh, manufactured shingle sheet good products come with a raised grain finish. So there, there isn't really, at least to my knowledge on the marketplace, a, a version of a non-wood shingle that isn't wood grained. So I would consider removing those. So I think uh, on page four, item C uh, refers to fiber cement and other synthetic siding. So I would assume that other synthetic siding could include vinyl, um, as long as it didn't have the wood grain textures. Um, so maybe that's that could be. Right. Um, I understand about not not having the wood grain texture, but um, okay. Did you have any other uh, questions? Uh, yeah, I also had a question about trim on page four. Uh, it says no smaller uh, window and corner trim shall be no smaller, and I'm assuming we're talking about coins on corners. Uh, one by four. So I assume that's not an actual dimension, but a commonly referred to one by four, which is three quarters by three and a half. So just to clarify what we're talking about, you know, uh, when you say one by four. Uh, so is it a nominal is dimension? Is it a nominal dimension or is it a actual? Good point. And you know, sure, part of the reason right. I asked that is I have a Colonial Revival, and the coins in the corners are a rounded uh, piece of trim uh, about an inch wide. So uh, you know, there's lots of examples I can show you of historically correct houses that don't have uh, this kind of trim. Yeah, I think this maybe is referencing more applied trim versus, as you're saying, the the corner coins. Yeah. Good point, though, about the nominal. I think that's a good one to clarify. Yeah, and I've, I've previously pointed out that the, the two-inch stucco molds are also commonly used on shingle buildings. Right. And um, shingle molds instead of stucco molds. Yes. But they're also, they're not four inches. Um, so I guess that just throws it into a discretionary review category. Uh, or, or we keep adding more criteria. <laughs> more criteria. Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to capture them all. Um, did you have any other yeah, questions? Yeah, this one is just more uh, general. So, you know, I, I understand the idea behind the design review standards so that we can streamline reviews, um, you know, as you said, you know, reduce costs, you know, support the housing stock diversity, et cetera. Uh, but this is just part of the review process. It, when it comes to the actual building of these buildings, whatever they may be, what level of enforcement goes with this? As in, how will the city know what got approved, got built from a design point of view? Because at least my experience with, you know, the building inspection process is they're there not 
specifically around design elements as much as you know code enforcement, building you know uh, methodology uh, more than design adherence. Is that one that you can answer for us, Henry? Well, I'll just I'll just say that you know we reviewed the building plans too to make sure that the building plans reflect um, you know what what is um, supposed to be reflected in the objective design review standards, right? And right. then and then as part of the inspections, you you would also follow up to make sure that it was built correctly too. So it, it's a two part process, I guess, to that. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I'm I'm just curious about the the second part of the process. Did did it get built? Uh, as as intended or as uh, specified, you know, and that's uh, always, a, you know, a, you know, a, a question, and I I just wonder what you know what is our process around that? It, it's it's inspections, building inspections, yeah, that's the process for it. Uh, Mr. Tai is going to chime in on this one. Thank you, Alan. Hi, thank you. Um, good evening, Chair Sanchez, members of the Planning Board, Alan Tai, City Planner. So, um, adding to what Henry uh, just explained, we do planning, we'll review the building plans, and that's where we would ensure that the, the architectural plans meet the objective standards. But um, while planners are not building inspectors, um, we often coordinate with our building inspectors to make sure that important projects are going to be meet the, meeting these standards. And then um, selectively, the planners will also go out there and do a design review inspection before a final sign off for CFO. So okay, um, while we don't go out and inspect 100% of our projects, I mean, we, we do try to go out and make sure that these important standards are met. Great. Could I ask a follow-up question yes, on that one? So, uh, and then the other, I guess, the other remedy for that is that if somebody were to say apply under the objective standards and and if their application showed a certain type of window, but they installed uh, one that was disallowed, then that could lead to code enforcement down the line as well. Uh, right? Not necessarily. So uh, I would say our building inspectors are pretty good at flagging those things. For so me, that one's not the best example. Yeah. So but. if if they see the wrong kind of windows not matching what's on the plans, they would usually flag you know one of the planners and go, "Hey, this looks different. How do you want to handle this?" And so um, the the consequence would be they, the project wouldn't pass inspection, okay. and they just won't. Yeah, they won't pass inspection until it gets corrected. Okay. Great. Thanks. So that is, I, I, yeah. Thanks for the explanation. I just wasn't aware what kind of communication really went on there, especially on larger scale projects where, you know, like, well, how does that happen? I, yeah, there's actually a lot of uh, in-house back and forth between planning and building, it's particular on the inspection side on these issues. That's so great. It's conversations that we have on a daily basis. Super. Thank you. So before we let you go, Alan, just in case this one's for you and not for Heather. Um, so I had another question on page three with regarding still on the siding materials. So when it refers to exposed wood, it talks about um, that it should be painted, stained, or treated and maintained. So I wondered about that one as well. Like how do we ensure that the finishes are being maintained on a, on a project? Uh, maintenance, I mean, that's, that's, that's like an outlier. <laughs> I mean, that is something that we, uh, after final building inspection and we issue the certificate of occupancy, that's not part of the objective standard review anymore. 
Okay. So if we need to, we might need to just go in and clarify the language. But uh, in terms of I wondered of the, about that, yeah. Yeah. For, and that's the reason for my question, because it seems like enforcement of that might be a tricky one. So it may not be something that we set up the expectation that planning is going to be going around and enforcing yeah. maintenance of wood. That finish. is a good catch, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Any, uh, does anyone have any other comments before, or questions for staff before we open it up to public comment? Thomas? Okay. Um, yeah, I think that addresses all the questions that I had uh, for staff at the moment. Should we go ahead and do we have speakers? Yes, we do have um, people raising their hands. Um, and then we have um, also Mr. Buckley here. Okay, we have Mr. Buckley, our first speaker. Thank you. Christopher Buckley with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. We sent a letter last night. Hopefully you had time to look at it. And um, we'd like to thank the HAB for supporting our previous comments and also staff for incorporating them into the revised draft. So the objective standards are getting better and better and uh, we're, we're very encouraged by that and would like to thank you for your diligence. Um, the comments we've submitted so far are still somewhat preliminary. We're still reviewing these two documents. Um, there's, there's a lot of detail and that, that needs to be you know, considered, and some of that came out in this discussion that, we, we, that the board members just had. Um, I was going to go over some of the points in the letter that we sent last night quickly, and then I'd like to revert to some points we previously submitted that uh, may have fallen through the cracks. Um, the letter addressed primarily the application of the TDA to the commercial areas. Um, there were three main comments. One concerning the stations to define the context area as the area within the C1 zone for that station. That was a strategy that was discussed previously at the HAB. We thought it would actually be implemented. And uh, if it's if it's not, then you've got a lot of residential buildings within the TDA for that station. And the design characteristics of residential buildings are often significantly different than commercial buildings, and it could create difficulties in applying the contextual standards. We think it's better just to limit the context area to the C1 zone for the stations. And um, the, another strategy would be to allow, uh, consider allowing N's and S's for reference buildings regarding the stations to all buildings within the stations collectively. Within each any one station, there's probably not too many of those NRS buildings. If you look at all the stations, uh, you'll, you'll get more. And that was another idea that was brought up, I think, at the last HAB meeting. And there should be a list of all the N's and S's within Park Street, Webster Street, and the stations um, that the HAB could review. So you get an idea of what the universe is of these buildings, uh, at least within those areas. And um, within Park Street and Webster Street and the stations, you know, consider treating storefronts and perhaps first floors differently for context purposes from the rest of the building. And there's already standards that apply to storefronts within the um, document. And, uh, and maybe the context section could just refer to that. Uh, can, I, had, I submitted some screen share. I don't have time to go through it. Can we start that? This relates to the, can we share the screen, please. April 5th. Um, 
and we're running out of time here. So Can we share the screen, please? Here. Thank you. Um, I'm, um, there's the architectural details section. Um, we're concerned that um, some of that is too loose. The applicant can select only two details, and particularly item K, they can select any detail that's a little too open-ended. We're suggesting priority details be identified and required to be used in all cases. There's a lot more discussion of this in our letters. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, next speaker. Okay, um, next speaker we have Doug Biggs. Thank you. Mr. Biggs. Uh, good evening, my name is Doug Biggs. I'm the executive director of the Alameda Point Collaborative. Uh, thank you for giving me time to speak tonight. Uh, I'm here to talk primarily about the special standards and exemptions. Uh, a lot of that came out of the reshaped design out of Alameda Point, which was shown to you as part of the presentation. And the, the, the genesis of these uh, standards and exemptions really comes from best practices around trauma-informed design for uh, supportive housing programs serving chronically homeless individuals. Um, and thus, the need for kind of an inwardly focused uh, campus type design and not putting the main entrances out on, on the streets. Um, we support all of the, uh, the standards and exemptions done under, under section six. Um, I would uh, suggest that the, to remove the um, 6A number one, that the required to occupy a site of at least one acre. There are supportive housing projects that will occupy less than one acre and still need trauma-informed design that serves the needs of the, the residents that'll live there. In addition, we would wanna add one more and that's to exempt um, unenclosed, that uh, unenclosed stairs may be permitted. And the drawing of the Paseo entrance, which was shown to you as part of the presentation is exactly what we're talking about. Again, from a trauma-informed perspective, having open pathways um, and not having closed and closed pathways where somebody could feel threatened or, or scared is, is very important to the design. Um, it also uh, provides a much more open access to the, the building itself. And, and so something like what they were showing in the Paseo and the stairways going up are exactly what we're looking for. I know, I believe the Housing Authority is either sending in comments or we'll be talking about it tonight. They have a few recommendations as well, which we uh, support in its entirety. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Riggs. Do we have more speakers? Uh, yes, um, next speaker we have Sylvia Martinez. Ms. Martinez? Yes, um, good, good evening. This is Sylvia Martinez from the Housing Authority of the City of Alameda. And I thank uh, Doug for that introduction. You know, some of the attributes that he spoke of are, are attributes that we want all of our multifamily to have, a sense of safety and a sense of, of um, openness um, for folks. Um, I'm gonna uh, rush through a couple of items um, that I'd, I'd like for you to look at. The, the campus style uh, environment really fits a lot of multifamily design buildings. Um, and on this island where parcels are small, the one acre um, attribute is, is challenging for us. So we, we would like to see that removed. Um, we also want to um, 
talk about uh, some of the guidelines in the courtyard section and in this campus section almost uh, would require multiple main entries. And the main entries are being treated with extra details and probably do not make sense and would cause confusion um, if we had multiple main entries on multiple buildings, I can think of a couple of sites that we're looking at that have two buildings in order to maximize the site and to have two main entrances would be very challenging for us. Um, speaking along with that, um, uh, the Gateway Street designation uh, along Tilden and along some of the other areas if you think of those areas, to have a main entrance on, at a gateway where you don't have public parking in front, mostly because the streets are very highly used, they're kind of the highways of, of Alameda, um, those are challenging and we would really like to see some, some uh, availability of not putting the main street at the gateway street. Uh, you, when you look at that map, um, would you really want children coming out of buildings right onto a busy street like that? Would you want visitors to the site um, and uh, uh, possibly uh, future applicants to be coming in off of those busy sections of the island streets? Um, it, it is a challenge for us, that gateway designation, and we're, we're going to ask if that could possibly um, be removed as a main entry point. Um, Again, avoiding main entries and also consideration for having a vehicle entry on the same face as the main entry. Sometimes that is the only choice we have um, because we have lots that only have one face. And so um, again, it's putting these ideas together into one building that becomes complicated and costly. Um, the last thing I'll say is that an example of this is the 30% transparency required for large window areas. When you add that to the articulation required for windows, it becomes a doubly costly effort. And we saw that in our sign um, at our North Housing Development. Thank you for your time this evening. Thank you. Uh, do we have other speakers? Uh, yes, um, next speaker is Mike Van Dyne. Mr. Van Dyne, you Hello, me? can you hear me? Yes, we can. Hi, good evening. Thank you. Uh, hello, thanks to all the members of the Historical Advisory Board for volunteering your time to consider and advise the city of the impact of all types of development that may have on our city's historic resources. I want to address one specific category of the Objective Design Review, Section 6. Um, if you could look at principles, housing for seniors, persons with disabilities or others with mobility challenges, et cetera. While there may be other legitimate reasons for this section, I believe it may also have been included as an attempt to exempt from zoning regulations, the historic buildings of the U.S. Maritime Service Officer School on McKay Avenue. In case you are not aware, the district at Crab Cove that encompasses all the remaining buildings of the Maritime Services Historic Training Center has been determined to be eligible for the National Register of Historic Places by Joy Beasley, the keeper of the National Register in Washington, D.C. in September of 2022. The historic district on McKay represents the last example in the nation of this type of rapid response World War II 
Merchant Marine Officer Training Center. So despite the fact that Alan Tai of Alameda's Planning Department assured the Historical Advisory Board back in March of 2021 that these buildings are not historic, this is now a nationally recognized campus of historic buildings in the process of being included into the National Register. As Board Member Borthwick can explain, as a member of the Advisory Council of Historic Preservation, the district once on the National Register will ultimately be monitored for historic preservation and guided by Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. But make no mistake, all actions by our Historical Advisory Board going forward in regards to this historic district will be considered by the ACHP, so action is essential. I urge you to make an official stipulation and recommendation that the section six of the objective design review referring to campus style housing should not apply to the study list historic buildings of the U.S. Maritime Service Officer School District that have been recognized as eligible for the National Register. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have other speakers, Henry? We do not have any other speakers. Okay. Um, so with that, we'll close the public uh, comments section of the hearing, and we'll move on to um, board member comments. Do we have um, any comments? Who would like to start us off? Uh, board Member Hernandez, you want to start? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, one of the things I believe uh, Ms. Martinez talked about was the removal of the one-acre uh, requirement in Section 6A1. Um, I'm wondering how the one-acre got there to begin with, how, how that size lot, if there's some history behind that number, or uh, if... Uh, Maybe even she has a suggestion for a different size number, or, or why is it that we have a number at all? I guess is a interrelated conversation. So um, maybe is, that's a staff-directed question. If if sure. someone knows, is that a question that you could answer for us, either David or Heather? I guess I'll just say this was a first draft, and um, it's not really like anything we've written before. We know the reshape project was nine acres. Um, so we started with one acre, but if that's too large, we can reduce it. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay, did you have any other uh, questions? Um, or comments rather? Not, not specifically on that one, but okay. if, if other board members have thoughts about that I'd be interested to hear well Trustee. yeah go ahead well, one thought I have is is that I think it's it's going to be exceedingly difficult to incorporate every possibility into this document and if we do it's going to be so complex nobody will understand it so I think that we just have to you know set guidelines and then assume that things that don't qualify go through discretionary review and that's not a bad thing right um, so that's my initial thought is that I, I, I think we really can um, be weighed down with too much complexity. Yeah, I would say with regards to Miss um, Martinez's point in particular regarding the campus and I think Board Member Hernandez is that maybe keeping, um, 
keeping that standard with regards to the size of the lot more flexible so that it doesn't exclude potential campuses that could be that could benefit from it that don't meet the one acre requirement um, seems like that would maybe go towards uh, board member Saxby's point of not uh, sort of creating an artificial funnel for prop for property based on property size that might not be applicable and it may keep it a little bit more generic so maybe a more generic statement about you know larger property lots that are you know, it, it, greater I mean, than X or, yeah, that, that could accommodate, because obviously you're not going to do a campus on a residential size lot that's 5,000 square feet. So uh, I think that the idea is that the property is large enough that multiple buildings and parking would be included that would define the campus. So maybe defining it more broadly so that it's not based on size, maybe by those criteria might allow things to not have to go through object uh, uh, you know, not not to be subject to design review because of that. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, when I read this, what immediately came to mind are, you know, like the Stonehenge development or the little bungalows uh, on um, San Jose at Willow, or the other little bungalows down uh, next to the park on uh, Encinal, you know, just before Webster, you know, like there's mm -hmm. pockets of these. So is it more defined by the number of residential units? Is it like four or more? Or, y you know, how do you get your hands around like, well, you're talking about small numbers of, uh, relatively speaking, units uh, combined with other kinds of buildings and, you know, uh, and, in the world of small buildings, you can get a lot on a single family lot, so. Right, no, know. I think that the, if I understand correctly, is that the campus, in particular, the campus style is for sort of larger developments that are not sort of individual residences around a courtyard, but more um, where you have large numbers of people living together in a more congregant setting. Right, so the one acre may be an appropriate size even though Correct. we were hearing a suggestion to remove it, probably because there's a piece of property in mind Correct. driving that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Yep. Um, okay, did you have other comments, board member Saxby? Well, I, you know, there's a lot going on here, so. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go I, 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 going back to uh, Mr. Buckley's comments, um, I think he made some valid points. Um, I think with the C1 or the stations in the C1 district, you know, the stations do have the potential in the context setting to reach into residential neighborhoods. And I, I think that that is inappropriate. And so I would like to see um, the context for the stations uh, limited to the C1 district itself. Um, I'm not sure about the allowing the NNS um, buildings and all of, the, all of the stations combined to be used as reference. I, I, you know, it's an interesting idea, but you know, I'm not really certain that that would express the particular identity of each of the stations if you're allowed to draw from all of them into, uh, into a, a new building within the stations. Um, you know, I think that the the, his, his uh, Mr. Buckley's uh, concern about the priority details and the, <clears throat> I think there was kind of a, 
you know, pick two out of, or pick two of these or three of these details for your um, architectural style. Um, page 25. Is it page 25? I, I do think that's problematic as well. I agree with, with his point there that there really should be priorities established to um, define what are the essential architectural details that are necessary to articulate a style and then beyond that you could have you know a, a selection list but I think that we should probably pick um, three or four of these and call those you know the mandatory detail details and then have another subset that um, could be uh, more selective. Um, you know, I'm, I, you know, Mr. Biggs, the comment about the unenclosed stairs. Um, I haven't seen good examples of that, so I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not sure I could support that. Um, and I do think that the idea of, of you know, having inc incorporating all these ideas into one document is problematic, and I think that we really should, you know, be willing to say that things that don't comply with this document can go to discretionary review, and, and then they can be addressed specifically based on their merits by the planning staff. Um, I think that's sort of generally my comments. Okay. Uh, any other board member comments? Did you have something? Well, I guess um, like board member Saxby was saying, there was a lot of various points made, so it's, it's a lot. But um, I'm very much looking for the illustrations that are to come because I think um, pictures say a thousand words and so I think that would be very very useful um, I think that there's a balance right because if the standards are vague then that can be you know subject to even more confusion so it's kind of a balance between there being specificity enough so that people understand what kind of things to address and pay attention to as they're in the design uh, process of their project. Uh, and yet, we don't want to hold them to such scrutinizing standards that it's not feasible or, you know, really halts a project before it can, you know, fruition into a completed um, building that people can be proud of and be of use. Um, I also want to make a comment that wasn't really touched upon today, but I think that, you know, um, I've said this before, I think that good design and there is sort of this um, flavor, rhythm, uh, kind of like feel of Alameda in different neighborhoods. And I think that even though affordable housing is very important, and I think that, um, it's something mandated by our state and something that we want to um, encourage. Uh, we still wanna make sure that the buildings that we build are of quality. 
Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily always mean like the most uh, extravagant, most costly materials, but just because something is affordable doesn't mean it can't take a little bit more thought. And I think that um, that's something that these standards are trying to do in hopes of um, just a place that people want to live. And also, um, I think some of the fears of, you know, standards, uh, I think I've heard like of cookie cutter or Disneyland, and I think that was something that was uh, touched upon in last time's meeting. I, I really don't think that's really possible um, when we're talking about, um, you know, Alameda proper, uh, unless you're kind of in like a development where every single building must have, you know, the exact same uh, paint tone or, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm not for or against Disneyland, but they take a lot of time to really make things cohesive. So to get to that point, I think, would take a lot of effort. Um, I just don't think there's any way to make our streets to look that, um, that way. I think there's enough variety, enough you know, um, various buildings coming in at different times that create sort of this, um, uh, this, this kind of inclusion of different businesses and such. So uh, I, I don't think that having the, a, a certain rhythm and scale of various buildings um, that relate to other buildings that are existing, I don't think that is in risk of being cookie cutter or Disneyland-like. Um, and I think that's about all I want to say right now. Okay. Very poor scump of me, but yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, okay, so for me, I'm, I'm going to uh, just reiterate, I think uh, Board Member Saxby has already touched on this one, but I'll um, throw in my two cents as well. So yeah, I, I guess the C1 in particular is one that uh, feels a little bit difficult um, only because I feel like there are examples of locations. I'm going to go back to the example of Ensenal and Chestnut, where we have sort of a four-corner C1 district that's then surrounded by residential. And so it seems that um, it doesn't quite fit the ideal of the neighborhood context. Um, it, so I guess I would be open to having um, more opportunities to draw from either other C1 districts or other historic districts that are that would allow for a little bit more variety, rather than it has to be um, governed by those four buildings alone or or the neighboring structures. I think, for example, if the Chestnut Market were to add residential above um, above the retail, then certainly some of the other buildings could serve as a as uh, you know, as the inspiration for those or as the reference building for those. Um, but I think that the retail component, if, if we were trying to do an infill to replace um, a new retail building in those corners and we only had those, those structures to draw from or the neighboring residentials, then it, it feels like it would be a little bit limiting. And so having a little bit broader area seems reasonable to me. Um, let's see, what others? The yeah, I think otherwise the uh, 
Um, I would say that I'm, I'm generally in agreement with the, and I appreciate the change that was uh, talked about for the balconies. I, I think that the change that has been made since the last, since the original proposal to not have the balconies sort of uh, just project out from the building was, is a nice change. Um, uh, I think the, I'm going through the notes from Mr. Buckley with, uh, in uh, his April 5th letter. So there was a, a small suggestion about the height of the, of the muttons um, on the windows and reducing those from 3 eighths to 5 sixteenths. And I imagine that the, the reason that suggestion was made is because going to 5 sixteenths perhaps increases the number of existing windows that fit that dimension. Um, and if that's the case for 1 16th, I don't have any issue with that. Um, and yeah, I think that covers my comments for the moment. Can I make one more comment? Please do. Uh, in response to Board Member Jones's uh, discussion of affordable housing, I think that's an important topic that I don't know is really addressed uh, in these objective design standards. Um, you know, we're building a lot of new housing in Alameda, and it and very little of it is affordable. And um, you know, maybe we should be looking at some kind of a subset of these design review standards that would apply to affordable housing um, that would make the process uh, more streamlined and you know, allow the developers to, to build within the affordable price range. Um, just a thought. I think we need to, as a city, we need to consider that. Uh, we need to encourage the development of, of affordable housing and, and maybe as part of that, look at how they can be um, treated with the objective design review standards. Can, um, can I have a, add a comment to that? Please, please um, do. That topic did um, come up at the planning board meeting and many of the planning board members were, um, I guess they were, had reservations about having a, a, a different standard for affordable housing projects. They, they thought that, um, I guess it would be like a stigma that would um, be created if affordable housing projects were built to a different or lower standard. And so they wanted to keep them, I guess those types of projects all within the same category rather than having them separate. But I, I fear that, that it, it's at risk of not having them developed at all. And so I, I, I really think there needs to be some thought put into it. Um, I don't know if stigma would be the right word that I would use, but you know, if you can still have objective design review standards, but just you know, maybe a slimmer version that would um, get us to a basic acceptable level of design without all the other criteria. Anyway, it's something that's beyond our discussion tonight, I think, but it's, it's an important discussion. And, if, and maybe, maybe all affordable housing projects have to go through discretionary review. I mean, that's okay too. But is that, is that the intent of these standards is to sort of exclude a whole class of, of, of buildings? Well, I think it's to, reduce the, it's to reduce the amount of time and effort that it takes to go through, right? Is that, am I wrong about that? I thought the, the 
impetus behind the state sort of demanding that we have object, uh, objective design review standards was precisely in order to allow for development that was affordable without having the onerous requirements of, of uh, design review. Is that, am I right in saying that? Yeah, that's part of, you know, part of it is a streamlining of the process, the design review process, kind of giving everybody, uh, you know, they know exactly, you know, they, you know, developers know exactly what the city wants. Um, that's why uh, kind of the state uh, is requiring this. Um, so I did want to uh, kind of summarize some of these, these uh, uh, comments that I'm hearing and then I'm wondering if the board would want to discuss what the feedback should be to the planning board. Um, and in particular, you know, on this, this is a topic right here. If the board wants to make some type of recommendation or feedback to the planning board in regards to, um, you know, separate standards for affordable housing. Um, um, I don't know if the, the board wants me to kind of go through the notes that I've taken as far as uh, topics that have come up um, and see if there's consensus on, on feedback. Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you, Dave. Okay, um, and so uh, the first one are as uh, yeah. So uh, I, I hear that um, the board um, supports uh, AAPS's uh, uh, comment regarding architectural features that there really should be three mandatory architectural features uh, chosen, um, and then some type of choices afterwards. Um, and so I just. Wanted to see if there's consensus from the board on that recommendation or feedback. Um, also, uh, it seems like there is support of uh, including uh, C1 districts in the, or uh, using C1 districts for the um, uh, reference and context area um, in the TDA, um, but there doesn't seem to be consensus on whether, you know, that just applies to the, the station that the project is in, or does it apply to other uh, or other stations as well? Um, and then some um, some other uh, notes uh, was to use the the guide to residential design style descriptions uh, to to have a, a more objective definition of what an altered building is. Um, uh, um, ensure that there's. Uh, Clarity within the the uh, one and two unit um, uh, guidelines for um, not allowing raising of uh, other types of uh, buildings other than Victorian and, and colonial revivals such as craftsmen, and so making sure that um, you know our our objective standards reflect um, that's in the guide to residential design. Um, uh, some cleanup of language like the the maintained in the in the um, uh, in the exposed wood uh, section, so just kind of removing things like that where it's not part of an objective standard. Um, and then uh, uh, supporting um, the change in 3 eighths to 5 sixteenths. And then um, also kind of wanted clarification if um, for the window trim section that um, board member Hernandez had brought up with the, the one by four, um, if we would want staff to make that change to a ratio or uh, with like a minimum of three fourths inch by three and a half and then maintain that ratio or if the you know one by four um is okay as is and so those are the, the items that i got from the discussion 
So was, was the, uh, did you mention, or does the, the guide to residential design cover the, the issue of, of raising an existing single story building up and putting a new floor underneath it? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's that, um, that is allowed in the guide to residential design. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it would be a matter of seeing um, ways to make that more, you know, make that description and that um, standard uh, actually objective. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would like to include that if other board members uh, agree. I just, I think that what I see um, in buildings that have been raised is the, the issue of the front entry and the, the stairs leading up to the front entry being very problematic from a design point of view. Um, you know, climbing up the, the long staircase up to the, the porch takes the building away from sort of a neighborhood setting and lifts it up out of, the, out of reach, um, which, I, which I think really uh, destroys the character of the building. So I'd like, you know, that's what I'm saying is I'm, I'm looking for other alternatives that might uh, help address that. Yeah, David, am I correct that the, the design review guidelines now have, they speak about sort of what styles are allowed to, uh, to be raised and which ones are not, and sort of the proportions, that, that the ratio that's already included in, uh, in the objective design standards, is that, is that correct? Yes, the, yeah, the guide to residential design does, um, you know, pr yeah, there's a whole section on um, adding a second story and raising, um, and so. Uh, uh, I don't know if it explicitly prohibits certain architectural styles, but uh, it would, I guess if you were to, to, to try to make the math work, it wouldn't work for, proportionately for you to do a, cra to raise a craftsman, so. Well, I don't think so. Yeah. There's too many, um, features in the front of a craftsman, namely the, the columns and the porch and all that, that right. would just, that doesn't work to, to raise that up. Okay. Um, yeah, I think uh, one of the, uh, so I, I'm gonna go back to the, the, thank you for the summary, David. I, I think with regards to board member Hernandez's comment about the size of the trim, I think it's just a matter of sort of clarifying, is it a nominal dimension or is it a, a true dimension. Um, so again, as he was mentioning, one by four, we typically, if it's a nominal dimension, we mean three quarters by three and a half. That's what you would get at the lumber yard. And I think that's what's assumed. Yeah. When you say one by four. I would say, I would think so. Okay. So some clarification. But if you just w use the word nominal, then you've covered okay. it. Perfect. Um, yeah, and I guess, uh, Back to the discussion for a moment about the the affordable aspect. Um, I think for me that the number of details that are required might be one sort of uh, option, right? That maybe if if the project is intended for affordable housing, then potentially that could be the number of details that you would have that you would be required uh, to. A, to include could be less, and then perhaps if it's market rate housing or a market rate project, then the number of details could be increased. And I think a correction on, on your summary, David, was that I think it wasn't raising the number of details from two to three, rather I think it was the idea of ranking the details in order of importance so that the character defining, so that it's not any two uh, character defining elements, but that maybe there be a 
prioritization of the character defining elements so that we say in this order is that is that would you agree with that no i think there i think that the idea that mr belkey brought up was that you would have two or three mandatory details that would be on the list and then everything else could be more of a selection process got it okay and i i think that that you know if you if you go to that list and pick out you know some of the more critical ones then that that makes sense to me Yeah, so then, yes, I, I would agree with that, um, with that approach. Does that sound good to the rest of the board? Okay. And then um, it sounded like you had a question uh, with regards to our comments about the C1 district. Uh, yeah, so yeah, the um, from what I heard is that there's support for, for um, you know, restricting or basically eliminating, um, you know, R zone properties from the context area um, when it's located at a station. Um, but it seems like there is disagreement as far as um, is it just that station or is it all the stations that you're you're using as a reference area? Okay, so I'll I'll try to clarify my comments and I'll let the other board members uh, give their own opinions if they differ from mine. So in my opinion, I, I wouldn't say to eliminate the residential from the context area, but rather to allow uh, somebody to use other C1 areas as their reference buildings and not have it limited to the, to the adjacency, to the 250-foot adjacency, so that if you're in a situation where you have four C1 buildings within a residential area that you could potentially expand the area of reference to either go to other stations or other NRS buildings in other districts to draw from rather than having to keep it localized to your neighborhood within a 250-foot uh, radius. Does that, that well, may differ from others, but that was, that was my intent. It wasn't necessarily to say, no, you can't draw from the neighboring residential properties, but if there isn't something that you can draw from that you feel is appropriate, that you have the ability to then go to other C1s and use a reference building from perhaps another station. Is that, am I clear on that, David? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I would just point out that my, my point was, was a little different than uh, Chair Sanchez's. Was I, was, I was saying that use the C1 district exclusively, don't reach the context into the residential neighborhood and also, I was unsure about taking buildings outside of that district as, as um, oh, examples so we're and, and just keeping it, you know, more, keeping the identity of a particular um, uh, C1 district and not trying to draw from other districts. So I was, I was mine, mine was more restrictive. Um, and I don't, I don't think we, we necessarily have to vote on that as a board maybe maybe we can just present it as two options that we discussed to the to planning board and let them toss it around there you go so lots of opinions and no consensus how's that <laughs> <laughs> i mean do Probably we need to vote yeah. on this no. uh no you you can you know uh yeah you can definitely present the two options There's probably other options there yeah too. yeah <laughs> so, and, and i'll just again to sort of elaborate on that uh board member saxby so as i was saying for me it feels like if you were looking at adding residential over retail 
um, in a C1 district, then the neighboring residential could be, um, in my opinion, could be s still uh, a resource. Uh, but I feel like if if they're if you're limited by the resources because you're one of four buildings that uh, that fit that particular designation, that if you needed to broaden your scope, you might be able to draw from elsewhere. That was understood. Okay. Uh, did we did we give you uh, answers to all your to all your consensus comments? Uh, did we miss any? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, there was uh, yeah, board member Hernandez. Go ahead. Yeah, there was the one issue uh, that we talked about earlier in the conversation about raised wood grain and the use of vinyl, uh, and I just wanted to highlight that again. Uh, shingles are an important characteristic and historical buildings, wood shingles are particularly cumbersome from a maintenance and upkeep point of view, not to mention fire safety, not to mention you know other things. Uh, so I would encourage us to be specifically allowing wood grained cement board or vinyl shingles because that's what the marketplace offers versus the non-existent smooth cement board shingle. Just yeah, am I, uh, I'm sorry, um, go ahead. Just wondering about the, um, uh, what are they called? The, not shingles, but their longer panels. And there was like, it, it could only be flat or smooth and not wood printed. Uh, uh, hor horizontal, horizontal board, board horizontal siding. siding. Yeah, yeah what was, I mean, it's kind of on the same, I know that they're a product that's offered. I was wondering why those are, that product is excluded as well. I feel like it's in the same line of thinking. Yeah, I, and, and maybe th this is the question that I was going to ask David to, to uh, piggyback on Board Member Jones's question, which, so my, my assumption when I read about the siding not having graining was that we were looking at um, like V-groove or shiplap or something that would typically be smooth. And so that if there was a fiber cement equivalent of that, that it was okay to use as long as it didn't have a wood grain texture, right? So if you looked at a colonial revival that has horizontal siding, that typically wouldn't have a raised grain texture, which I think is the reason why they're specifically excluding it. Am I correct in that assumption, David? Correct, yes. Um, and then what Board Member Hernandez is explaining is that wood uh, board, fiber board or alternate materials uh, shingle siding will almost always have that texture. So I think okay. that's why there's, yeah. So I, I would agree with that. I would say that the shingles, uh, I understand the, the point of that. And then I would assume that like decorative trim and around windows and those sorts of things, that's again where you wouldn't want the raised graining. Is that correct? And would you be okay with that, Board Member Hernandez? Or do you see any concerns about I, I mean, I, I can, uh, I guess, understand aesthetically why some might prefer one versus the other. Uh, it is common for most of those materials, trim materials, to be offered in smooth or wood-grained, you know, things like uh, hardy trim or AZEC trim, PVC trim, which are very common, uh, well-used materials. So at least in the marketplace, there is a choice available where in the shingle material there is there's just no smooth version available okay yeah very good uh did you have any other uh, did we did david miss anything else in a summary of comments that we wanted to send along to planning board 
Uh, I think that's it. Uh, one thing else that I did notice that I thought was uh, interesting was um, on the exterior materials, and I'm sorry I, this escaped me earlier, but you're specifically calling out board and batten style siding uh, and allowing the use of plywood as the board. Yeah. Assuming that you're using the, you know, that as the, you know, one by two uh, minimum uh, dimension. So I was, I was curious about that because we're also specifically disallowing materials like T111. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I would, I would say that maybe a qualifier that it's exterior rated architectural grade plywood versus standard framing plywood. I was just curious about, you know, where if it was about quality, you know, obviously you wouldn't necessarily want to use plywood anyway from a durability point of view. So I was just, I didn't know where that came from. Yes, uh, Alan Ty is going to give us an answer. Thank you. So Thank I understand you. the question is about the sort of prejudice against T111. Is that pretty much the, the well, question? Well, I, I was in one section, we disallow T111 as a siding. And in another section, we specifically say you can use plywood in board and batten style. As a substitute for board and batten, yeah. Siding. So I was just. Yeah, I, I think. It's just a long-standing design principle in Alameda. It's just we, I guess, in the older days, we've had developments using T111, and just again, older days, that material is really poor quality. So I think that's just sort of a legacy from from that experience. Um, but you know, kind of to to a point that you made earlier, Board Member Hernandez, that materials have evolved over time, and there's better technology. And you know, if you do feel like under board and batten and you know specifying that statement you made earlier uh if you think that should be included we could certainly include it and and, and make that option available okay Th thanks yeah i mean I, I wouldn't recommend using plywood personally i was just curious architectural what? grade i mean if, yeah. if you believe architectural grade that label is, is a better quality product now and should be made available as an option then we could certainly do that okay got it yeah. Thank you for the clarification. Thank you. It's still just a very thin veneer. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Uh, any other uh, comments or that we'd like to include it on our list? So I think you, I, I think you have us summarized fairly well, David. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. OK. Uh, yes. Uh, Mr. Dyer. Chair Sanchez, member of the Historical Advisory Board. Um, as you're wrapping up, uh, I just wanted to uh, thank the Historic Advisory Board for uh, your input on the objective design standards. I mean, this we've been before you multiple times now on the subject matter, and we really appreciate the time that you've put in, and also just want to acknowledge the work of our staff and our consultant on this, as well as uh, the public speakers, particularly um, the uh, affordable housing of providers. Um, I would say up to this point, we haven't really had a ton of engagement, so we really appreciate them speaking out tonight, offering those comments, um, and also the board acknowledging that uh, the development, the objective design standards has a direct cost impact to affordable housing projects. So 
Um, going forward, there's gonna be uh, more work for staff to take in your comments and to balance those priorities. But, um, and, and despite the planning board clearly not wanting to set a different standard for affordable housing, I believe there are ways that we can um, set up the standard so that uh, we will not inadvertently hold up affordable housing projects or add costs to them. So that's gonna be work that staff will do. And then um, we'll, our next set would be uh, to present it to the planning board with a recommendation. Um, we're also engaging a designer to uh, work on graphics, which I think at the end of the day will have a very nicely packaged product. In fact, uh, we're probably one of the pioneer cities in the East Bay with objective standards. Uh, we adopted it in 2020, and some cities who are still catching up have been looking at our standards as a, as a model document. So uh, really proud of the work that the boards and commissions have done um, so far. Um, and just one last note is uh, we've only applied the objective standards to three projects so far. A lot of the scenarios that we're talking about in the TDA, we haven't really yet had a project to apply it to. But I would say that, uh, you know, while we probably can't get to perfection, um, but uh, when we do get a project and if we find an issue, trust me, we'll be right back in front of you to make some changes. So uh, this is a document, you know, that, that can be a living document. And if we see issues, we'll certainly be ready to make those adjustments. So with that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, likewise, I'd like to thank all of you for your efforts. I understand that it's a very difficult thing to, uh, it's a Herculean task for sure to try to get um, an objective set of standards that captures the wide net that we have in our city. So we're very appreciative of it as well. Okay. Um, so if we don't have any other uh, comments, yes, Just go ahead. Real quick, and, and thank you so much, um, Mr. Tai, for um, sharing that. It's very encouraging. I think that um, it's important that we want to support um, equitable housing, uh, affordable housing, but certainly the design uh, should be of quality. And again, not saying that um, you know uh, we need to use the most expensive materials, uh, mahogany, whatever you know. But we don't want to uh, differentiate any buildings or I think what was the word used? Um, uh, help me out. Some, there was a word used today. I forgot. We don't want to. Um, we want the design to just be cohesive with our beautiful city, in essence. You know, so um, if I'm driving down a street, I'm not going to say, "Oh, that was a, a affordable housing building." It's so obvious because there's no thought or detail. It's just a white box or whatever. You know, and I'm not saying that's what the proponents and the um, folks who are really pushing for equitable housing in all, um, always. You know, um, because these are the people that really want to make um, theory into reality, that the, they want to see the project to completion. So I totally uh, stand by that, respect that. But again, I, I think that um, these objectives are important because we want to hold people uh, to a standard that is reflective of a, a beautiful, thought-out building. So. All right, thank you. Okay. Any other uh, comments? Okay, so we'll move on then to our next agenda item, board communications. Are there any communications from the board on anything that we haven't touched on on the agenda? No? 
Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe just a question. Please. So are we meeting, do we know if we're meeting in July? Yet? Um, we were just polling uh, for a possible meeting, but I don't, I, I, I guess I probably will have to check in a little bit more, but possibility. I, I don't think it's going to happen, though. So, and then August yeah. is August is a, a recess? That's a, that's a dark month, right? Okay. Yeah, so if we need to do something, we'll have to poll you guys um, for that, too, okay. as well. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, any staff communications? Um, we don't have any staff communications. So if we don't have any other communications, I think we are ready to adjourn. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you.